Episode two is on supply chain agility, and it's going to test your thinking about how agile you really are and how agile you want to be. From the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. All right, Steve, understanding that the folks in Texas are digging out of a big winter storm, and then also we have armada of container ships sitting outside the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, it's probably good to have a timely conversation around supply chain agility. So can you give us some background in your point of view? What is supply chain agility? I sure can. And this is not this is not just my point of view. There is a actually a body of knowledge and science around supply chain agility. I'm relying for the most part on a framework that was really advanced by a very uh, well-known academic, Luke Van Washoven at INSEAD. And uh, he found this topic interesting. And many years ago, Luke, Luke is one of those famous guys that a lot of academics, I think, are a little nervous about delving into areas that have been undelved before. <laughs> um, but he's, you know, probably listed as this, the top researcher in operations management in the world. He's certainly in the top 10 in terms of citations and other. And so I think his pedigree allows him to kind of get into areas that other people may fear to tread. But Luke, Luke's done a lot of research in this, this area, and, and he boiled it down to some fairly simple concepts. It's really two things. It's flexibility and responsiveness. Now, let me talk about the flexibility first, because flexibility is about the ability of a firm or an organization, if, you know, if, it, if it's, a, say, a government agency or something else, to have options available to them. So thinking ahead about, you know, in this scenario, I might do what, or in this scenario, I might do this. So creating the capabilities to do things in the face of an adverse condition, a change in market conditions, something that is unforeseen or unplanned for. Now that means you have to plan for them, right? You have to think about it. And, and I guess the best way I could describe that is sort of taking a bunch of possible scenarios, boiling them down to what may likely happen and what may not likely happen and then saying, okay, what would I do in this circumstance? I, I often apply this thinking to, you know, what the military does, right? So the military has a very famous saying about, you know, every plan uh, is great until you engage the enemy <laughs> and then you have to pivot and change, right? Yeah. So you have to respond. The other thing is, is flexibility, right? So it's the ability to, to do those things, right? It's one thing to plan for them. It's another thing to be able to do them. So not only do you have to have different plans of actions, different courses of actions, you also have the ability to implement those actions when and if needed. So I guess a, a sort of a simple example is, you know, if I've got a network of warehouses and one of my, one of my warehouses goes offline. Now we used to always use the scenario, well, what if my warehouse goes offline because a tornado hits it, right? Which doesn't happen very often, thank God. But in the last year, we've learned it. What happens if a warehouse goes offline because I have a COVID outbreak and my employees can't come to work, right? So that ability to think through all these scenarios, have different plans of actions. And again, I'm using an extreme example with a, with a warehouse, but it could be something just as simple as, well, what happens if I run a promotion and the demand far exceeds what I had planned for? or doesn't, right? And I've got too much inventory. What is my response then? 
there are some traditional ways that people would do that, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you used to go to a store and they would hand you a rain check, right? You remember rain checks when you were a kid, right? Because they didn't have enough product and you had to come back and get it. Those days have long since passed, but you know, now supply chains have to respond to rapid changes in demand quickly. And the way to do that without a whole lot of hoop jumping and, and teeth gnashing is to have a plan for it, right? right. So yeah. agility is really two simple concepts, responsiveness and flexibility. So I look at things in a, in a simple, I'll call it consulting two by two, which is one, one which is the probability of something occurring and the severity when it does occur. So I think it, it just seems like over time, we've leaned out our supply chain so much and extended our supply chains a lot. And the fact that we've actually, and, and maybe some of that is because we've not taken a, I'll call it a, a scenario by scenario, customized look at what from a probability versus severity of an issue of something occurring, some event in the chain. So does an agile supply chain follow in the kind of severity probability continuum do you only see it when it's high severity or do you see when it's high probability or what's your point of view of that no it's a great question i think it's across the entire continuum i think if we only plan for high likelihood events or high impact events then that's all we're ready for but a lot of what happens in supply chain are i'll say call them mundane things right a truck doesn't show up or you know, oh, my supplier ran out of raw materials because their supplier ran out of more. Like a lot of what happens in supply chains from a disruption standpoint is mundane. It's day to day. I think it's fairly straightforward to conceptualize these major events, you know, your black swan events and think about what you would do. But as you point out, the, even though the impact is fairly high, the likelihood is fairly low. It's more than likely on a day to day basis that you're going to have a spike in demand on a particular product or a shortage of demand, or you're going to have a, a shortage of raw materials, or you're going to have all these things. So it becomes more of changing the culture, right? And becoming agile and responsive and flexible as well as resilient, right? So uh, you mentioned this extension of supply chains. The personal protective equipment market is really a good example of that. You had these very extended supply chains, which happened to be coincidental with single sources and therefore single points of failure. Now, I, I don't want to get into the politics of which country we were sourcing from. That's not really relevant because if it wasn't China, it could have been some other country. We know this from procurement strategy. If you put all your eggs in one basket, right, and the basket fails, you're going to have a problem. And so part of this is also thinking about it from a risk and resiliency standpoint. And you mentioned about leaning out the supply chain. We did a lot of that for efficiency, but as you know, and I've actually seen your writings on this, you know, flexibility and responsiveness are somewhat counter to efficiency, right? right. They're, they're almost by their nature somewhat inefficient. Now, right. I like to use Amazon sometimes as, a, as both a, a positive and negative example, but you know, Amazon's corporate culture is built around one visionary theme, which is customer experience. And I think their CEO, Jeff Bezos, would say that if they did everything based on cost efficiency, they would probably have a lot of unhappy customers, right? Right. And so, you know, if you if you think about it in that context, right, and we know this from the from the financial performance of, of Amazon. I mean, there were many, many quarters over many, many years where Amazon didn't make a an operating profit on their their delivery of products to customers because they were solely focused on customer experience and that 
So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have a system that's built entirely on efficiency and ignores flexibility and responsiveness or, or ignores responsiveness to the customer. If you're going to be responsive to the customer who ultimately pays the bills, you have to be able to give up some on the efficiency. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for your business. It's a good thing for growth. And it's a good thing ultimately for the customer. So Steve, you mentioned uh, resiliency as, as one of the themes. Gartner just came out with a survey. They just published it on Monday that said 87% of supply chain professionals plan to invest in resiliency in the next two years. So 87% of the respondents said they're going to invest in resiliency and 89% said they're going to invest in agility. So 2% of the population of the supply chain professionals knows the difference between agility and resilience. Can you articulate a difference between one or the other? Well, you know, resiliency is a response to risk, right? And I don't think you can separate resiliency and risk from agility because the responsiveness piece is responding to change. You know, I'm presented with a scenario, demand has far exceeded supply or supply is far below expected demand. That requires a response, okay? It requires a resilient response. I had to have thought about it ahead of time. I had to have a plan for it. Now, we know that responding to any kind of risk, we can be proactive or reactive. And I'm guessing that the Gartner survey, which is probably fairly accurate, and I'm wondering what the other 13 and 11% of people are thinking, right? Either they're the market leaders or their heads are in the game. I'm not really <laughs> sure which category to put them in, but they're certainly the outliers here. Well, and maybe they have. Right. There are some firms where they've already know, done it. I think weathered the COVID-19 <laughs> storm from a supply chain perspective fairly well because they were well prepared. Uh, but that is the minority, right? And I think what most firms have learned in the last 11 months is that we were not well prepared for this kind of right. significant disruption to our supply chains. And therefore, we know we need to go invest and do that. I think the interesting research question for me is, 89 or 87% said they were going to go do it. I'd be curious a year from now to find out how many did. Because as you and I both know, is that once the, once the crisis is behind us, organizations tend to fall back on what they know. That's true. And the, uh, the people who make the decisions around what capital gets invested say, oh, that was the problem of 2020, 2021. We've got new problems right. to invest in in 2022. There seems to be a lot of energy around... Um... I'll call it China plus one, that companies are, maybe that's what they're investing in resiliency is identifying different sources of supply and different uh, geographies to source product from. It may have been what came out of the last year and maybe something that, you know, kind of parlays forward. What, your thoughts on that? Is, is that a resiliency strategy in your point of view? Yeah, I think, well, for certain markets, I was using in the earlier example with personal protective equipment, where markets were highly concentrated in certain product categories coming out of certain countries. That's always a, you know, in my own business that I, I have experience with, and again, I think, you know, I was in the textile industry for many years, we were very mindful of having diversity and not having single points of failure in any country to source in. So in our business, and this is public information, I'm not talking out of school here, we sourced from, uh, for North America and Europe, which are our two primary markets, out of about 16 different countries. So we weren't concentrated in any one country. And part of that was for risk and resiliency. Some of the marketplaces like healthcare have 
I don't think by intent, just sort of by not paying attention to it, ended up with very highly concentrated sources of supply in certain countries. And now they're realizing that that was a bad idea. You will see products shift from single source countries to multiple source countries. Some of the big players are doing it. Apple's doing it. Some of the automotive manufacturers are doing it already, but they were already doing it before COVID. They were already thinking about these things before COVID because I think they already realized that they had single points of failure. You're also going to see, I believe, in the West, and this is a trend that's been going on for probably close to 10 years now, the idea of reshoring. Right. And I think reshoring is going to get a bigger set of investments, I think, both from a government perspective as well as from a company perspective in saying we need to shore up our own risk profile. You know, we can't rely on the fact that if my border closes, that I'm not going to be able to feed my population or provide services to my population or provide healthcare to my population, right? That's an unsustainable scenario. So I think all of those things are occurring. I think COVID-19, again, if you want to look at the lemonade from lemons out of COVID-19 is some of these problems existed. We just didn't realize to what extent and COVID-19 highlighted them. And now they're going to force action on some people's right. parks that should have been taken previously, but now it, now it needs to be taken and it will. Right. Any comments on some supply chain enablers that you've seen, whether basic process or technology? Uh, wow, there's a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of investment and, and has been for years in um, risk-based tools. You know, I think of, you know, I've seen some tools from Bloomberg, from Resilink, from others, you know, that enable companies to look better at their risk. I think the idea of this scenario building You've got companies out there like Blue Yonder and Llamasoft and others, Dassault Systems, creating the ability to create digital supply chain twins. Right, digital twins, yeah. Right, where companies can then do some tabletop scenario building of, and if you're familiar with that, you also know that there's a process which is called bump analysis, where you take a, a node in your network and you, you take it offline and see what happens. So you can test points of failure and I think those kind of tools will enable firms to better prepare for not just the more complex scenarios, but the more mundane scenarios and come up with better plans around that. And so, you know, I, I heard somebody in a meeting the other day, they described this very well. They said, you know, in our business, we're very concerned about what happens if a fire occurs in the plant. Okay. And so we practice all the time, the fire response in our manufacturing plant. And he said, the nice part about that is, is we, now they said, we don't want a fire to occur. We hope it never occurs, but we know when it occurs, everybody knows what they're supposed to go do. And therefore we minimize the impact, even though it's a scary scenario, we minimize the impact of that. I actually know about this firsthand because in the textile industry, you're worried about a fire all the time because cotton is highly flammable. And so I thought it was a great comparison because if you think about it, if we practice and prepare for these things then when they do occur, they're not that big of a deal, right? Okay, the truck didn't show up today. Okay, well, how do I change my production schedule quickly so that I don't disrupt production? Or or there's a weather event, or, or again, all the mundane stuff that occurs. So I think you asked about tools, these kinds of tools where I can visualize risk, I can visualize the scenarios where they're going to occur, I can probably highlight the ones that may potentially occur so I can mitigate any kind of disruption that's gonna come from them in advance as well as planning out scenarios and saying, if this happens, here's what my fire drill looks like and making sure people are better prepared for that. So those, those are the kind of tools I think that are going to enable people to do better. 
you were talking about fire drills and all I could think of is the number of times I've been in a warehouse and a, and a forklift hits a sprinkler and uh, creates more damage than, than the fire ever could have. But I think the, prepare, the preparation that people do for the fire itself also helps you for the water damage that comes from the sprinkler system that actually is used to prevent the fire in the first place. So Steve, again, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And that's all we have in this section. Great, Art. Thanks so much. And thanks for supporting us with the uh, SCNIF and uh, CSCR podcast. Welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast today, Galen Smith. Galen, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So as a, as a little bit of an introduction with your bio, Galen Smith is an accelerator of transformation in IBM's AI-enabled supply chain, utilizing design thinking, agile, and cutting-edge technology to generate change and adoption. Galen has led large-scale transformation initiatives across all areas of supply chain. She was recently recognized by the National Association of Manufacturers 2019 Artificial Intelligence and Analytics Leadership Award for the Augmented Intelligence of IBM's supply chain. Recently, her team received a Devi's 2020 Award for the Best Innovation in Blockchain for the Customs Declaration Blockchain. Galen has an MBA from Duke University and a Bachelor's in Industrial Engineering from Georgia Tech. So thanks again for joining us. Steve, I guess I'll leave you with the first question. Well, hi, Galen. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Yes, as well with you too. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your career at IBM? Sure. So we mentioned that I graduated from Georgia Tech in industrial engineering. So that field of itself is focused on bridging between technology and users and always on the edge of improving things. And, and that is where I really found my passion. So most of my career, I've spent in supply chain, in transformation. And I really enjoy finding ways to improve how the user is going about doing what they need to do, how to always put them on the leading edge. I love looking at new technologies and bringing them to the users. So I've, I spent a lot of time with AI, IoT, and you know, last year spoke to this group with blockchain. But it's also through this that I got into the Agile back in 2010, converted from the waterfall approach to Agile, and also where I learned about design thinking and was able to use that in all the supply chain transformation work that we've done since then. Oh, that's excellent. So currently your team focuses on leveraging design thinking. So what is design thinking? Good question. It is part of the Agile umbrella. So you probably heard about DevOps, where it's integrating development and operations or Scrum, which is the iterative development deployment. Design thinking is another element of agility and Agile, but it's focused on that front end where you're really connecting with the users and understanding the user needs. So it's a process that focuses on people and their user experience while you're infusing innovation as you go about solving problems. Problems. It's an approach that applies to any product, any organization. And IDEO was the company that really brought this to the forefront. And they talk about being masters of the approach, but not masters of the product. It's something you can do anywhere. They've, they've done their thing with design thinking on mechanical whales, on mouse pads, toothbrushes, shopping carts. So it really didn't matter what they were looking at. It was how they went about it. And that's one of the parts I love about it. Anybody 
can pick this up and use it. It's not like you have to expect some group over there to be innovative and they just tell you all their great ideas. Everybody in the organization can take this and apply it to be more meaningful solutions, to pull more information out of the users and the user experience and deliver at the very end, you know, better solutions to any problem your company might have. So how does a group in supply chain leverage design thinking to build an agile supply chain in this case? Well, there, there are a couple of key elements that I see are different about it. One is really about how you talk to users. So you spend a lot of time asking them what they want, and they tend, as their nature, to look at what they have now and think about how to improve that. But it's always looking at the function. And we have a couple of exercises where we try and get people to stop focusing on the thing or the solution and back up and spend more time on the user experience and what's behind it. So So for example, we have people design an alarm clock on paper. And so, you know, that's typically a very boxy thing with digits. But then we rephrase the question and say, well, now design a better way to wake up. And now you get all this creativity about throwing people out of bed, dumping water on them, you know, pulling the covers back, light coming in. The same thing with like a vase, right? If you say people, I need to design a vase and you're like, okay, you know, here's your vase. But if you rephrase it and say, well, how can people better experience flowers? Well, now the world just opens up. We start with the different way of framing it to the user so that they get out of the thing and they look at the experience that's behind it. And you talk about, you know, how do we delight you? It's with the user experience, not with a thing, right? No one's going to get excited about a web page, but it's how they experience the web page that can really be exciting for them. And so, you know, talking to them about the user experience, think about what Starbucks did to coffee, right? Or Uber did to taxi cabs. They really backed up and didn't just think about the coffee or the ride in the taxi cab, but how do I improve that overall experience? And really spending much more time up front on this part of it and listening to the users than you've done in the past. That's one. Another one is cultivating innovation. So you really spend time with diversity of the people involved because you have to have diversity to generate creativity and innovation. So who you bring in, who you involved, making sure it's the actual users and not reps, but also retraining them to be creative, right? They've they've been trained as we grow up to adults to lose this creativity. You know, trees can't be blue. They have to be green. You don't draw outside the lines. But you help them shake that off and to start looking at possibilities and not just jump to, oh, you want something, the thing I can deliver fast is this, right? But to step back and really look at possibilities and let go of all the limitations of how you might deliver it and just think about what it is they want delivered. What is the user experience that would delight them? And you just stop there, right? You spend all the design thinking and not ever touch the solution. That's way deferred to where you actually go and start trying to worry about that. But all design thinking is getting them to think about what it could be and getting them to pick the vision, but smaller sections of it to how they would do incremental deliveries. So you can think about the big vision and how it might be and then deliver something as you work towards your MVP and your heels with constant user engagement and feedback and course correcting from that. And Galen, how does design thinking really help companies be more agile. Can you maybe compare it to other ways that companies might approach supply chain agility and using design thinking as sort of a different approach? How does it really help them get to where they need to be? 
I think one of the biggest changes is it focuses on the people in the organization because it helps them develop a growth mindset. And for companies to excel, to be resilient, to be agile, you know, you do need technology, right? You do need physically to be flexible, but you also need to have this in your people. You need them to be able to not be stressed out with new news and changes, but to be able to adapt and be flexible and design thinking helps them with that growth mindset and helps them to, to know how to ask better questions so that they get better ideas, right? If you don't have the ideas, you can't develop the solution of those ideas. So a better way up front, but getting them to have an innovative spirit to where their culture that supports that, where they're safe to experiment, safe to make mistakes with the experiments. We don't call them that anymore. You just say, I tried it. I learned from it. I'm not going to try it again. But to have that spirit of how they go about doing it and, you know, risk-taking and being open, a lot of it is just making sure we listen to everybody and give them a chance to be involved with diversity. One of the techniques in design thinking is instead of just everybody in a group talking, is having everybody write out their information first. And so by just the very nature of allowing everybody to write their thoughts down, you know, stickies or electronic stickies, and then having everybody go through that opens that door to diversity and making sure everyone has a voice. And it's not the first person that stalked or, oh, the user said that it must be right, or my manager spoke. So that's an integral part of, again, a different way of working, a different way of infusing them and helping them to change their mindset and be more more adaptable so that the solutions they come up with are better solutions for your company. And if I could ask then, besides the tool and the skills that you've been able to develop and apply broadly across IBM, how big of a role does culture play in design thinking as well as agility? It's big. And one of the things that both agile and design thinking have as a foundation is the supportive management structure and organization to change culture, to get them to be more relaxed with change, because instead of fighting it and being restrictive and resisting and causing stress is to be welcome and open. I mean, one of the big things that Agile teaches you is when you get requirements from your user and you go into testing and they say, oh, that didn't work. I want something different. We go, okay, what is it? As opposed to, I'm sorry, I have a schedule. I can't possibly take in new requirements right now. So just building that environment, that's a major cultural change. And even though you might have your employees willing to do it, if the management team around it, isn't as acceptable with, I tried that and it didn't work. Oh, that's okay. What did you learn? If that's how they respond and not what, what happened? I want to know exactly the root cause, who's to blame. So culture is very much part of giving the people the freedom to try new things, to experiment, to be innovative and creative and knowing that not everything's going to work and it's okay. What's been some of the fun examples that you've had in your training over and above like an alarm clock? What are some other examples of interesting results you've seen? Well, yeah, alarm clocks is one of the ones we use just to help people think differently. I know it was in just recently one where I gave another example to try and help them open their mind. This was in a, just a recent one is people that you know design a park. And they go out and ask users for, you know, what their feedback is and, you know, the reply back, I need a fountain. I want a fountain. And you could stop there and say, okay, we got to make sure we have fountains. But if you take that extra time and you talk with them about well, what it is about the fountain, you know, why is it this important to you? You find out that it's because growing up, 
this person's grandparents was on a farm and the listening to the water, playing in the water was a, a big part of the activity, what they wanted to create for their children. And so it really wasn't the fountain. And when they got down to, I really want to have that water engagement, that it, it opened up all these possibilities. You could have a waterfall, you could have a water park, you could have streams. And so it was worth the extra time really going underneath the fountain. You get this a lot with, you know, we have a lot of people when they come into IT and they're like, I need a web portal, I need a database, I need to put all my, I want to be able to get all this information in one place. And so it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with the information? Wouldn't a better way of framing the idea be like what you really want, what would really delight you is if you could just have a best friend that you call up and you say, hey, I need this information. What do you got for me? And they explained it to you. You had questions. So we're trying to, to help users back up from telling me the thing that they want into really think about, you know, the possibilities. Try not even describe it in a work sense. Like if you want a tracking mechanism to track paperwork or something flew, just say, you know, that's kind of like FedEx. I wish I could track it like FedEx because that opens the mind to possibilities and allow people to build on those ideas. And really in the ideation phase, it's a lot about throwing out an idea, having someone comment, oh, I kind of thought about this. Oh, and yes, and I thought about this. And that time for them to really bounce back and forth with just not even looking at a solution, but just bouncing about the what if, what are the possibilities is where you really start to get the creativity. And it's funny, we've been doing an IBM design thinking for many years now, and it's so incorporated into the mindset of the people that we don't have to do a lot of prep. You know, some of these workshops can be two days long while you're training people and getting them into the groove of what design thinking is. But it's now so embedded that when we have a problem, we're like, well, let's have an ideation session. And so that's what we call. We know there's a little prep work to do to think about who's the focus audience, you know, what are the pain points we're trying to solve. But they they really get the enjoyment out of the ideation because again, the looseness, the freedom, the fun part of of going in and just throwing out your ideas, listening to other people's ideas and building on them to end up with much more unique and fun results that solve their pain points more than it just one person had been thinking about it. It's interesting, Galen, you know, as you describe this, I was curious, is there a history and a science behind design thinking? And can you share a little bit of, of that, sort of the background of it? IDEO really is the company that started it. And I think it's just their looseness in, you know, there's a lot of design and you can get a degree in design and you can really, you know, expertise and everything in design. But they were like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But design thinking is just the approach of creativity and innovation. And they really is the one that promoted it at the beginning. It caught on really well. You could go on the internet and just Google design thinking and a lot of companies have their approach and their definition and their words, but they're all very similar in what they base it on. And it's really just, you know, this company is available to help design like, you know, the the mechanical well that was in Free Willy, right? They just come to them and said, I'm trying to do this. And it's the approach of what is it you're trying to get out of it? Who's the user group? And really doing that. And they do the same approach, whether it's a shopping cart. They have a video that's actually a link in my presentation for this, you know, a 10 minute video on their approach when they were just doing a shopping cart, how they went about doing it and the questions and what they learned and, and the very quick prototyping that they do and they learn from it. So they prototype again. So the whole approach 
you know, they, they'll, they'll do their designs in like two weeks or one to two weeks based on what it is and how far they have to travel to just really to show that they can come up with some very insightful results without really a lot of training. I mean, the people they hire are not, you know, engineers as such. They have a biology major. They have a linguist. They have social works. They have, you know, marketing, MBA people. And they do hire all these different people because of the diversity that you need when people coming up ideas about, you know, well, why do you do that? Right. Well, why don't, why don't you look at something different? Oh, I never thought about that. Well, Galen, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate you uh, presenting and I understand you're going to be with us at the um, supply chain leaders forum in the next few weeks. So again, yep. thank you for uh, helping give us an introduction of design thinking and how it applies to agile supply chain. Well, thank you for having me. It's a passion of mine, so I appreciate the opportunity to share. Again, Galen Smith. Thank you for the IBM. Thank you again. The Penn State supply chain community was saddened to hear of the passing of Joseph Cavanato. Dr. Cavanato was a big influence on many who he touched. His wisdom, his insight, his intellectual curiosity, his approachability, and mostly his humor made him truly one of a kind. Our thoughts and prayers are with his wife, Mary, along with Joe's family and friends. We share in your grief. Upcoming sponsor events include uh, Executive Education Fulfillment Operations, February 22nd through the 24th. February 25th is our Spring Supply Chain Leaders Forum, subject to Supply Chain Agility. In March, we have an Executive Education class, March 1st through 4th, on developing strategic supply chain leaders. The 8th through the 12th, we have a sprint for the Supply Chain Academy on building a continuity and resiliency in your supply chain. March 15th through the 18th, an executive education of achieving supply chain transformation. April 6th through 8th is an executive education of aligning supply chain organizations. And April 14th is our spring corporate sponsors meeting. So again, thank you for all your time, Steve. It was great talking to you this month. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you again next month. Thanks, sir. It was great to talk to you too. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.